would also like to start off with a word of prayer as I begin my preaching time um, today. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you grateful for your word, for the power that it contains, for the beauty that is in it. I pray that we would be faithful, that we would be found faithful to observe it, to know it, to understand it, and live rightly because of it. I pray that as your word is preached today, that you would guide me, be with me, as you promised to be. Your presence is here. And I pray that your word would not return void. May the meditations that I have invested into this sermon be faithful and honoring to you. You are my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in your name, amen. So today, I intend to do something a little bit different than probably what you are used to. Um, it is my goal to preach somewhat of an upside down sermon. So we've been used to receiving sermons that are expositional, that work through a main idea of a text that is initially introduced and then unpacked in its facets in how it is explained through the text to lead us and urge us throughout. So in some sense, it can be like a cone, and at the top of it, you have this main idea, and it begins to work out into our lives. Um, this would be a deductive sermon where we get that explanation throughout, and it's unpacked more and more. Today, I intend to flip it, so I don't want to catch you off guard. I, I intend to withhold the main thrust of what I would like to communicate to you from this text today. And I would like to start broadly and work with you as we work through this text to drive towards that central idea that I would like to just lay before you as an implication and application of this text. Um, so just be careful with this, hang on with me. I, I hope that it is not too jolting, but I think it will be helpful. Th this text is an important one. And in the midst of where we sit in the context of our church, I think it's important for this moment. Um, one of the unique things about the job I have is I'm investigating and helping seek out the initiatives for church planting from this church is thinking through what it means to pursue this goal and see that it would be done faithfully to see that we would partner rightly, to see that we would be ready as a congregation for that in the members that may be sent or in the leaders that may be sent from this church. And as I've thought through that, there are characteristics within that context that feel absolutely essential if we are to take steps further down this road. Things that we cannot miss in partnerships, in church planting, if we want to be members that are planting, if we want to be a church that is planting according to the way that God would intend us to do this, if we want to see it done well. Um, and I think within this text, we're, we're going to see from just the get-go, the onset, the broad principle of the funnel that I'll be doing is stewardship. And essentially, I think there is a lot that comes with that, right? Everything we have in one sense is something to be stewarded. And yet in our flesh, we don't naturally tend towards stewarding the gifts that we are given as God would intend us to use them. Um, we tend to value things like the output of our lives more than the things that God might value. We, we tend to put the output above faithfulness. 
in ourselves and others. Um, there, there may be times that we think we are stewarding things rightly because they benefit us, but we do not see because of our blind eyes and our fleshly desires that in reality, what God would intend as best, we have disregarded either to some extent or fully, and we make excuses for these things. There are lukewarm hypocrites among every large group of people, and I, I want to be careful, but I, I don't want to assume that of all of us by any means, but in a room this size, I think there are at least components of this that we need to think through individually, if not holistically, and this passage addresses those things. So what I would like to ask then is, what would stewardship of the greatest gifts that God has given to us look like? And I believe that in this text, Matthew and, and Jesus, as he unpacks this parable, um, he, he's gonna address these realities in this question and more. He, he's going to warn us with a fearful warning that true disciples really do anticipate the Lord's return and they express their love for their master by faithfully participating in the work of the kingdom and there's evidence of this in how they steward all that they have and, and as we funnel this down, we'll see where this goes. Um, so within this, I, I would like to propose to you three truths that compel faithful living. I think through this passage, we will see specifically three truths that if you were to unfold them, unpack them, they would show us what faithful living looks like and would compel us toward it. They would be motivations for that. I see those in this text. And what's fascinating to me is that while I am in Matthew and maybe you're thinking, man, I get another week off before we start into this eschatology stuff again. Wrong. Uh, this is the eschatological discourse in the book of Matthew. Um, so living in light of the Lord's return is what we will be talking about. That's the largest principle within this. Um, so within these three truths, the, the first will be this, that, that God entrusts. God and trusts. Um, this can be found in verses 14 and 15, um, which were read briefly a moment ago by, by Ben. Um, and we see from the onset of this passage, it begins with a phrase that links us back to what was preceding it. It says, for it is just like a man. Well, what is the it and what is the for? Where are we going? Where has this been? So in order to understand what this is about, we have to collect ourselves a bit as we jump in near the end of Matthew's gospel. And so let's set the scene a bit. In chapter 25, um, where we find ourselves today, it's only a few chapters before the end of Matthew. And this is the material in Matthew prior to the plot that is against Jesus to kill him. This is the, the last section of this teaching that will come before that plot begins to unfold. And this is nearing the end of a scene of parables that Jesus has been teaching to his disciples and collectively, as I mentioned, they're called the eschatological discourse. You probably um, were not expecting that, but it's, it's still coming to us today. And this section of parables begins all the way back in chapter 24. After Jesus and his disciples, they, they walk out of the temple and they're staring up at this massive structure. And they're sitting there. And Jesus makes this remark in Matthew 24 too. He says, truly I say to you, not one stone here 
It will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And you can almost feel the suspense of the disciples. They seem to be contemplating as they're walking because we shift all the way to the Mount of Olives. They've been on this journey up this hill to overlook the city now and the temple. And on this hill, they're just going about themselves, probably nudging each other. Who's going to ask them about that comment? That was kind of a big deal. The temple is going to come down? What is he saying? And as they travel to the Mount of Olives, they, they anticipate this, and, and one of them speaks up and says, tell us, when will these things happen? This is 24, verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And we see here that they're connecting some dots. They, they're seeing the destruction of the temple in light of eschatology. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach, and he warns about false teachers, and he outlines some of the details of the end, and then he jumps into a string of parables that inform the disciples, and so too to us, how we live in light of the end that is coming. The end of chapter 24 informs us that we should live as, as though Christ's return will be impending. It's going to catch some off guard, these parables tell us. So we must be alert and ready for the Lord's return. And the theme continues into the parable of the ten virgins that starts off in verse 13 of chapter 25. And, 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 and ends, it, sorry, it ends there, it, right before our passage. And the parable of the ten virgins says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. So as it starts this parable, it tells us what is the content from the onset. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. That is what it is like. And then we flow right from that into our parable with the same context. It, the kingdom of heaven, we learn something more about what it will be like. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. They've been connected, merged together. So in some translations, this phrase, it, is, is actually inserted in its place, the kingdom of heaven. They, they carry that over. That's why they do that. And, and I think in many ways, this message to be alert, to be ready, have set us up for the question that this parable is going to answer. What does readiness look like? If we were to be ready for the, the coming of the Lord, if we were to be prepared for that, what would that look like? And then right after our passage is a description about judgment day and the sheep and the goats being separated. The sheep, the righteous, and the faithful will be brought into an inheritance of the kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world, eternal life new creation, and the goats, they will receive eternal punishment, hell. So what we get in between is very important because eternity is on the line if we miss this. That's the warning. That's the weight of it. So now that we're firmly set in this moment, let's see what this readiness for the Lord's return looks like as we begin the funnel. As I already mentioned, we can insert kingdom of the kingdom of heaven in here and all the context about the Lord's return that we just mentioned can, can be leading us into this passage. But what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? And honestly, that's a multi-lecture series on itself and I've just been brought up for a day. So we're not gonna dive into that fully. But let me attempt to give you a succinct and sufficient answer for today as we have a working starting place. Um, one commentator says that the, the kingdom of heaven refers to the sphere of salvation and all that it entails. So the realm, the, the sphere of what God's saving work through the gospel accomplishes, 
And all the outflow of that can be seen as the kingdom of heaven. And yet he would go on to say that there's actually two different nuances to this that Matthew will even use. One of them being an internal, fully changed person who is a part of the kingdom truly and deeply. We see this in Matthew 18, 3. He says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like these children, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So so to be in the kingdom, you you must be fully one of Christ's disciples, a believer saved, atoned for by his sacrifice. The other sense is the external, and that describes people that think they're in the kingdom. There's people who claim to be in some way or some form a part of the kingdom. They outwardly express allegiance to the king. However, Not all who claim to be of the king actually serve him. Matthew 14 includes the parable of the wheat and tares that will show this. There's this field and not all of them are going to be harvested for the Lord's reaping. Some will be burned. Another way to think of this might be the vantage point that we have of the kingdom versus the one God has. God looks in and sees rightly who are his children. But we may look around and those all who claim to be Christians and think there's certainly some who bear that title publicly that do not own it inwardly. There are hypocrites like the Pharisees who think they are in. They, the, the crowds that followed Jesus for the gifts that he offers to them, the miracles. But they, they don't want to be true disciples. They just want to get what he would give to them. This is true of churches and those who bear the name Christ as Christians too. Not all who claim to be Christians are saved. Matthew 7, same gospel, warns us of this in 21 through 23. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The way the parable plays out reveals this external sense. The parable of the talents that we are in today, it reveals this external sense that there are some who think they're in the kingdom, who think they are slaves of the master, who bear that title, but there is no true evidence of that when it all shapes out in the end and the master returns. There's a major distinction that is gonna be spotlighted in this parable. So, so what do those who are truly part of God's kingdom do in the, the kingdom outposts of heaven? How do they live? How do they advance the kingdom? How do they go about their daily lives in light of the Lord's return? Well, this parable begins and we are told the kingdom of heaven is like a journey and there's a man who goes on this journey. A far journey in this time period of Matthew's gospel as those who would be reading it would understand, right? They don't have cars. They're they're not flying to these places. To go somewhere for business or other means could take years. We're not told that he knows when it's going to end. 
but the, the trip coming to an end is anticipated. It's a journey. He's going to return. And with all the variables of travel in the master's business, we don't know when that date will be. It's open-ended. Regardless of what time that is, there is certainty that the master is going to return. He's coming back. And again, at this point in history, it, it would not be out of question to do what this master does. Do you, do you see how he handles this situation? He says, I have all these possessions and I want to be careful of them. And so he entrusts them to his slaves, three slaves in particular in this parable. And, and this would not be uncommon. At this point in history, Servants would be taking part at times in the family business. Um, and note here that it, it says his own slaves. It's, it's possessive. They're associated with this master. They're linked to him. These were those who, as we have been talking about, outwardly identify as people of this master, slaves of this household. In other words, of his kingdom. Yet while these who are devoted to the master by title, the quality of their devotion has yet to be exposed. They could be just externally devoted. And slaves, again, this, this word is probably translated in different ways depending on what translation you have in front of you. It could be servant. Um, some have even translated it as employee. There's a range of meaning there. And, and we know that Paul calls himself a slave of Christ on several occasions. This relationship with our master, our Lord, Jesus should not be striking to us in any way. But I think we need to understand slavery in some sense in light of this time period and not take our own ideas and force them in. Slaves could be craftsmen and traders and artists. Some slaves in this time would become quite successful in these business endeavors. They, They could become freedmen with great wealth and influence. This is not to say that slavery was good for all of them. It certainly wasn't. That there was very harsh conditions as well. But we can't take all of our ideas and put them in here. We're, we're seeing a, a good master. We're seeing slaves that are entrusted with the business. This is a, a unique setting here. And as the parable progresses, we see that these slaves are entrusted with the master's possessions, which tells us that the master believes they are capable of doing this task. And There is a talent, is what we learned that his possessions will be. In verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability before he goes on this journey. Now, a talent is a a word that describes a unit of weight. It's a a measurement of weight. Uh, And there's discrepancy on exactly how much weight it is, somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds, potentially. And it doesn't tell us exactly what is being weighed here, but we learn in verse 18 that there, he, this other one who hid this money, um, it, it calls it money, and this word is often used for silver as well. So 50 to 75 pounds of silver is what could be in the back of your mind as you're reading this. And that's one time, two times, and five times to each of these. And while it's not very clear how this comes through, we know that they're entrusted with a large amount. I mean, this is a lot of money. If we were to put this into some of their daily wages, I mean, this, this could, five talents could be equal to 30,000 days wages at its max value. This is a very large sum of money. And there's interesting discussion on why Matthew might have done this. Matthew seems to like doing this. He throws huge numbers in sometimes, And I almost wonder if he's saying here, look at how much abundance God has. 
but he throws in these large numbers to, to max out the scale for us in our minds. And I think he'll contrast that later, which is fantastic. And, and, and then we hone in on the key word of verse 14, which is entrusted. He entrusts, this master takes his money and entrusts it to these slaves. This is not the common word for give that will be used in the next verse. This is, this is the word to entrust. It, it means there's an expectation that he will get it back in the end. The servants knew that it was the master's money and not theirs. They were entrusted with his possessions. And we learn as the parable plays out that the business expectations of what that entrusting work looked like were clear. They were given a quantity of funds, we are also told, based on what they were able to handle. The point being for the disciples and for us that we are all different in this economy, in this sense. And what we have in, what we've been given in talents is, is varying, which leads to distinct roles and varying degrees to which we are entrusted, but we're all entrusted. In this sense, we're not equal. Not that we're less human or more human than each other, but we're all differently entrusted, and yet we're all expected to be faithful stewards. The quantity doesn't differ in the expectation of what we will do in terms of faithfulness. So as we start working through some of these dominoes, I, again, I want to hope lead us towards the, the culmination of this. I, I think we're going to begin seeing how this thrust comes out. How does this section get to the first domino falling? Well, here we see that stewardship is that starting point, the big idea at the top. In its application and, and meaning, the, the master entrusted his own possessions with his slaves that they would steward it in his absence. We are, if we're truly to live as though Christ is coming back and be found faithful as slaves of our Lord, then we must grasp this first truth that God entrusts. This is a gift in and of itself. The reality that a holy God who has everything he wants, doesn't need you, can create whatever he needs and owns it all, would choose to entrust something with you is quite profound if you think about it. That truth alone should compel you to live faithfully. The fact that he would entrust us is, anything to us is astounding. And so at this, the top of this, we see this truth that God has entrusted his people and that's driving towards this center and, and we must believe that as slaves of Christ. We should step back to the task of stewardship and, and step up to it as we look back at it and say, how can I do that fully and own it completely? Not half-heartedly, but with all that is in us because we're not talking just about a neighbor who, who wants you to look over his house. We're talking about God and what he has entrusted to you. This is not some weekend chore. This is our, our lives. So as we keep going down this funnel, let's, let's turn to a second truth. A second truth that should compel us to faithful living and that is that God's people are about his business. God's people are about his business. This, this is unpacked in verses 16 through 18. And, and let me read these to you. It says, Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground 
and hid his master's money. It begins with this word immediately, and this word is used throughout Matthew's gospel in various ways, but one noteworthy one here is that that's how he calls his disciples, that the disciples immediately leave their nets and, and follow Jesus. It also reveals the impact of Jesus' power upon people in healing. Immediately they gained their sight and followed him, Matthew 20, 34. Or immediately the leprosy was cleansed, Matthew 8, 3. We see that the first two slaves, the one with the five talents, the one with the two, follow this same pattern. They, they know what they're supposed to do and they go do it. They take these funds which they have been entrusted and go into the marketplace to see them increased. Notice this, that they don't gamble the money. They, they don't spend it all on earthly pleasures. They don't use it for their own gains or comforts. Everything with which they are entrusted is put back into use for the Lord, for, for the master they recognize it's not theirs to fool around with. They see the seriousness of this task and honestly, they're eager to go serve their master. They're compelled into action. There's no sign of delay. What's become apparent by the first two slaves is that they seem to understand what was expected of them, which is important for us understanding the third slave. It was not a mystery. If the master entrusted money with them and it was not given to them, it was to be used for the master. Now the overlap of this account and parallel between these first two slaves seen here, both of them entrust the funds and see them doubled. And this leads us to an expectation of the third that if he entrusts his one and invests it or, or goes out and trades with it that he's going to see two come back. That's what we should see. It's not that there's some significance in God saying, man, I want everything I give to you to be doubled. That's not what's going on. There's an expectation for us that there should be an investment and the pattern will follow suit, but it breaks the pattern. And this shows up in verse 18 that there's an adversative contrast to jolt us. This contrast introduces some tension that the first two slaves are pitted against the third. So what was the difference? What, what did the third slave do differently? Well, the third slave does not enter the marketplace to trade. He, he does not go about trying to make profits in town. He goes and buries the money. And this one talent that was given to him, I don't think what Jesus is saying in this is that there, those who are given the least are going to be the least faithful. And those who are given the most are going to be the most faithful. It's quite possible that he's zooming in on one as the least, the one who makes the mistake here, who gets off base to show us that it's not about the quantity that's lost that matters to God. It's about the, the content and the character of the heart that is faithful. Simply, he lacks faithfulness. And the man with one talent buries it. He goes off to some remote location, digs a hole, hides the money in this hole. And you might think that's kind of weird, but burying money in this time was, was not an uncommon thing either. They, people buried money to protect it, to, to keep it safe. It was something that actually took planning. It actually took effort. I mean, think about it, 75 pounds of silver. He, he had to somehow hide this, transport it to some remote location where no one would be, dig up a hole, bury it, cover it, hide it away so that no one would see it, sneak back so that no one goes and takes it. Like, there's a lot of planning in this. And I think this informs us something about laziness, which will be what this servant is called later, slothful, 
not to jump ahead too much, but, but this slave is going to be called slothful. Laziness doesn't just have to be the absence of something in our lives. It could be just doing the wrong things, avoiding the right things. We must be careful of these excuses that we use to justify laziness. I, I've been convicted in preparing for this sermon and, and generally recently, there's so many ways to easily dismiss laziness in our lives. It's a natural path of the sinful flesh to, to just disregard and not take hold of the opportunities that God would give to us. There's a, a story that came to mind in thinking through this that just grips me. I, I once knew a friend who was friends of a missionary. So you see the extension there. And this missionary had been spending time in a country where the gospel was not allowed to be presented or proclaimed. And in his efforts as a missionary there, he saw a man come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And unfortunately, because of the circumstances, this man who got saved got drafted into a military setting shortly after this conversion happened. So he did not have a church, he did not have anything but a Bible that he had taken with him. And he's smuggling it into this military camp. And he sends a letter out to this missionary and he, he wrote this profound request that gets me every time I think about it. He, he said, I, since I can't legally sing the praises of Christ and, and since I am incapable of being loud in this setting, I, I just ask that you would sing double for me. And I just wonder if we think about the opportunities that we have at our fingertips that God has entrusted to us and even seemingly little do we do with this freedom. Just the freedom to sing his praises. There are people that don't have that freedom. Will we sing with the full-throated praise that others and many more don't even know about this Jesus? They, they don't know his name yet to even sing it or, or do we disregard those commands to sing or complain about the music that we don't like or waste the opportunity by just sitting there? I mean, this is just one example of an outworking of this. There, there's so many resources that we have access to I mean, how, how will we use those? How will we be compelled to faithfulness with all that is at our fingertips? What would it look like to take inventory of those things and use them for God's glory? I mean, are, are we just pieces of swamped driftwood floating down a meandering river of Christianity that's cultural in America? Or are we active coals stoking the flames of affection for the gospel of Jesus, the, the power that goes through that by his spirit to fan a flame that burns brightly into the darkest places of this world that we might reach the lost for his glory? I mean, we, we should take inventory of these things, the talents that we have been entrusted with. If God's people are to display in this passage being the ones who are pursuing stewardship of the talents that they've been entrusted with, then we let's be warned if we're not faithful stewards ourselves. We, we must think through this. God entrusts things to us. And this passage tells us that the servants who will be found faithful in a minute, 
they are the ones that are compelled to do the business of their master. Those who are drawn into the work that he has. That is what God's people look like. So if we lack that, there is a warning that we need to hear that is coming. So let's hit this third and final truth that compels us to faithful living. And this is the bulk of this text. Verses 19 through 30 will, I think, show us that God settles accounts. This is the third truth. God entrusts to his people. The people of God do the business of God. They are about that business. And God is coming back to settle accounts for what he has entrusted. Let me start reading some of these verses to us. I'll read verses 19 through 23, which we have not heard yet. It says, Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you have entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. There's still lots to unpack here. This long time, again, sets the scene for this reality that Christ will be coming back and we don't know when it will be. But when he does come back, he's coming to settle accounts. He came and settled. These words in the Greek text They're in the historical present. You would be expecting them to be in the past tense because of the story. But they're placed in the present tense to draw our attention to them, to make them pop. These words are expected to be that way and they jolt us to hint at what follows is the crux of the story. What's coming is what we need to grasp. What he's about to unfold in this last section is critical. And this word for settle accounts, it's only used three times in Matthew. The other two are in chapter 18. I think Matthew is bringing to mind this story that's using that same language. And what do we find in key parts of that story? What happened first? Well, I'm gonna save that for later because I'm making a funnel, okay? (laughs) So what, what we see here is that these slaves actually initiate. They are the ones who come to Jesus. They, to Jesus, the master of the story who's referring to Jesus, they come to their master. It says they came up. The fact that these two slaves initiate shows something interesting, but the tone with which they do it is the critical piece. There is an excitement in the tone and the wording. They, they come and say, look, see the, these five that I have made for you. These two that I have have given back to you. I I think in this season, my mind thinks of the parent who's been faithfully discipling their their child in in deer hunting. 
And they have been investing all these skills and traits and take them off and say, all right, go on this first hunt of your own. And they return with the, the first animal that they have shot and, and brought back to their family to provide for them. I, I see this father here just looking in and saying, well done. But I see this son who's coming and saying, look what I've done. All the training, all the hours in the woods, all of the learning of how to, to stalk and, and to set up the blind in the right place. All this has been done. Look at, look at what I have brought to provide for the family. This is not some show off. This is not some brown nosing to get attention. This is genuine and intimate, a, a moment of love and admiration of the one who had been entrusted this possession of his master, the excitement that he could express out of love and faithfulness to him. Look what I have brought to you. To steal from another place in scripture, boldly he approaches the throne. He doesn't have fear of judgment. He doesn't have fear of anything that his master would be looking on him. There's no doubt in his standing before his master. He says, next, you entrusted me with five or two talents, depending on these sections, they're, they're parallel. And the statement acknowledges that the master is the provider. You entrusted to me. You are the source. You are the seedbed for where this all began. You initiated this good deed that I have even brought. Without you, it couldn't have been done. The master is the inciting instant for what has occurred. He doesn't point to himself. He starts by pointing to the master. There's humility. There is selflessness exposed in this. And in each response, the master says to each slave, well done. I mean, this is a mark of approval. He stitches together good and faithful to reveal both a character and diligence. These slaves have proven trustworthy and because of this the master continues and says I will appoint you over many things this indicates that the faithful servants will be rewarded with a position that will give them more scope and use for these abilities that they have that they could use them and and show that they could produce more for the glory of their master the Lord will be generous with those who are faithful when he returns Jesus is teaching that the reward for faithfulness is the opportunity for doing more in his kingdom, which I don't know if you've thought about this, but when God comes back, we're not just gonna be chilling on a beach somewhere. We are going to be stewarding everything that he has given to us to see his glory maximized for eternity. And, and there will be no comparison or judgment. He got five, I got two. None of that. We'll be saying, I am so grateful for these things. And, and we're compelled by this story, this parable, to think, man, if there's more that will be entrusted to me in eternity for what I do now, then how should I be living in light of Christ's return? The master continues, enter into the joy. The disciple and the master rejoice together. Joy in this eschatological sense with this section of Matthew in mind in his eschatological discourse, the end times in view. Within this section of Matthew, we anticipate the future joy with the Lord's return and all that that will include. This is the joy of sin eradicated, redemption complete, Satan utterly destroyed, beaten, never to plot against you, never to distract you, never to hinder you again. Victory that is won, no more tears, no more death, 
once and for all, God's perfect kingdom established and he will reign over it perfectly for eternity, a perfect king and a perfect new creation. Christ exalted and ascribed the full worthy that is due his name. The full glory, the the perfection of who he is, that is joy. That is joy for which Christ endured the cross, says Philippians 2. Joy that he does not just claim for himself, but he is offering in this parable his slaves to partake in it. Enter into the joy of your master. See here, there is this threefold response of of commending these first two slaves. They were affirmed, well done. They were granted increased responsibility because they were faithful. And they were invited to share in the joy of their Lord. Now it might be helpful to note here that both of these slaves, though varying in how much they were entrusted, they actually get the same reward. I don't know if you noticed that. The same response verbatim is given to them. Two responses, they're exactly the same. There's a few things to glean from this. First, we should see that even even the most talents that could be given to a slave in this sense, five talents, he calls them few. You've been faithful with a few things. The greatest he could give now is but a few. This tells me, first, that God has in abundance beyond what you can imagine. That the greatest he could give any one is but a few. And secondly, it tells me that this promise for, for, is, is outstanding for anyone who would be found faithful. He says the same words to the one who had two to see it doubled and five to see it doubled. This means that it's not the reward for what you produce in quantity, but for how you steward what you have, your faithfulness. God blesses each of them the same, showing the reward is not about the output. That part was up to God. But, But we're merely rewarded for the faithfulness for which we have been entrusted. What Jesus is pointing to is that your accomplishments in their quantity is not really what he's after. He he will do that. He's God. But really what he's after in you is your heart, your character for faithfulness. I had a brief conversation yesterday with a friend regarding this very matter as it outworked into one concept. And as I said, I've been working in church planting world as we've been thinking through some of those things at our church. And I think in that sphere, in that sphere of seeing the gospel advanced, we can often put parameters around those that we want doing those things. We can desire to partner with people that we see with the most output and not the people that are the most faithful. I mean, how many churches or missions agencies or people that are, are we searching out for and desiring and cultivating ministry, how many of those places are doing those things that revolve around producing a product of faithfulness. I mean, I mean, that should be core. If all ministry was based on fruitfulness in terms of output, then what we might be prioritizing are results over faithfulness, pragmatics over trustworthy character. If God is looking for faithfulness in his people, not quantitative fruitfulness, then we should be careful how we think through that in God's kingdom, through, through the work of his kingdom. 
Certainly we want to be wise and give God what is best, but if we avoid seeking out faithfulness and lower that down the ring of important things to look for, then the only reward in return on investment then is going to be what we see in this life because it's those who were not faithful were cast into the outer darkness in this passage. Faithfulness is core to this. As I look forward to what the Lord might have for us here or in supporting missionaries in the days of head and evaluating potential partnerships, I think this is of great importance. We must seek out faithful men and women. We must not cut corners on faithfulness just to, to reach out and grab a definition of fruitfulness. This will be critical to consider. We must desire faithfulness and cultivate that among us. I mean, if you, if you want to go and take part in what God is doing in his kingdom beyond this gathering today, then you should care about faithfulness. Those who love the master keep the master's commandments. And I want to talk about that motivation briefly. Why do these two slaves act faithfully at all? I will say to you that the love for their master must be core. They came to him with love. They, they brought it expectantly and hopefully to return back to him. Genuine love of God should result in doing the business that God is about, which brings up the important question, what actually is a talent referring to? I mean, we've been using that a lot in this text. What does it actually mean? What is God entrusting to us? After all this talk, what, I mean, is it money? Is it it's spiritual gifts? Is it just anything that we've been given by God? Well, I think we have to be careful of saying that it only applies to something that makes it just so narrow that it's, it's beyond what the text is really getting at. We've just zoomed in too far. But I think we can't go so broad that we dismiss the intention that Matthew might be getting at in this, that Jesus might be getting at in his parable. And while I think the principle applies stewardship in the broadest sense the top of the umbrella of this cone we've been doing I mean certainly we're supposed to invest all that we have because God has given it all to us back into his kingdom but what kinds of things does Matthew have in mind for us to be applying to stewardship directly or does he have anything in mind well first we should consider that this parable is sandwiched between two other parables about readiness for the Lord's return that sets the stage. Second, we must consider that this, this section has been exposing kingdom work and opportunities. That those who do the business of God, those who take part in his kingdom to see it advanced. So we must ask, what is the business of the kingdom? And what, what would God entrust us to take part in in that? And as the kingdom of God was mentioned earlier as the outworking of salvation I mean, that, as we anticipate that with this external kingdom of who's in and who's out, the, the truest sense of this is how salvation, how the gospel goes forth in his people in the power of what it accomplishes in and through them. So we must consider thirdly then, after all of this, then what when Matthew has been talking to must matter in what he's linking us to in other texts. And that's what I referenced recently or previously in, in, in some of these other texts like Matthew 18. So uh, turn briefly to Matthew 25 with me um, and look, you should be there, at 34 through 36. This is what follows this parable. It, it's, again, we're just stacking these up in teaching. So in verse 34, 
It says, then the king will say to those in, on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Sounds similar, right? We're seeing these similar phrases, ideas, words in the language. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Here, here's the reason. I, I, you, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came up to me. We see this, that Jesus is saying, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And those who did not do this, they too are cast into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit the kingdom, eternal life. And one of those clearly linked passages that also is here is just so helpful for us to see, but I think we should read 24 through 30 to get us there still. So let's look at this last section to get that last piece of the puzzle and we'll, we'll wrap it all up together. So verse 24 of our chapter in 25. This is the final response, the final practice the, of the unfaithful slave. Verse 24, and the one who also received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. And I went away and, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, in light of this, Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see again another divergence this third man, he, he comes, this third slave, and he's contrasted. He, he, does, he comes and he does start with master like the others, but then he goes on to describe this master and state his excuse for what has happened. He says, I, I knew you to be a hard man, a, a harsh or cruel or merciless man is what's in this word. You're unrelenting, you're unmerciful, you are unkind, you lack compassion and sensitivity. He seems to make an excuse rooting it in the character of the master. The first slaves pointed to the master and said, you entrusted this to us. The second point to the master and, and he blames him, the third slave, sorry. He, he points to the master and blames him. You've done this to me, you, you are harsh. And yes, he wrongfully assumes and wrongfully identifies this master. He doesn't know him. And instead, he attacks him to his face for what he believes him to be, to justify his stance. One commentator points out that he, he doesn't embezzle or spend this money or abuse it. He just doesn't use it at all. He wastes the opportunity 
This slave said in his heart, I don't want anything to do with something that won't benefit me. If you bring me into the kingdom and I don't get anything for it, then I don't want to do that. I'm going to bury that opportunity. He wants to live for himself. His idleness is because he does not want to do for God something that does not get him a reward. He just wants to sit on the sideline because it's not gonna benefit him. He's selfish. And he says, how do you reap where you do not sow? You, you, that's what you are, that's what you do. Well, what, what does this mean? How do you reap something that you didn't sow, right? Well, I think what he's pointing to here is in reference to describe what is hard. He says, for you, you reap where you did not sow. This fleshes out and describes what is meant by hard in the eyes of this slave. He, the master, he's saying, you enjoy the crops of all those people out there and you didn't even put in a lick of work for it. I mean, in a sense, he's saying, you're a thief. You're stealing. You're taking what isn't yours and then saying it's yours. Unlike the first two slaves, this denies that the talent even started as the master's in the first place. That the yield it brings would be the work of the one who he was serving in the household that was due the name of this master. The slave claims to not have done anything due to fear of this master. Did you see that too? It says, I was afraid. Fear that you would abuse or I would mess up this situation or, or that it would be a blunder that I would lower the stakes of this because I know how harsh of a man you are. This is an excuse. The slave's wickedness is revealed by his slothfulness. And Proverbs speaks to this slothfulness all over. He states this as an alibi too. He says, hey, if I, if I really think about it, I actually did do something. I went and buried it. So it's safe. I, I could give it back to you. I didn't want to lose it. And the master replies in return, you ought this strong term referring to not just being a better option or a possibility, but this was necessary. This is what you should have done. Spurgeon says of this, he would have been wrong to bury what belonged to himself, but he was doubly blameworthy in hiding that which had been entrusted to him by his Lord instead of trading with it so that it would be increased. The master then says, take what is his and the therefore here is important. Why does he do this? Because of the actions he's had, because of his unfaithfulness. Master is not acting arbitrarily. He, he knows what he's doing. There's an intentional consequence for this lack of faithfulness. And he says, give that then to the one who had the 10. This man has shown that he has the ability to profit, that he is a faithful steward and he will make best use of it. And therefore it will be left with him. This is not saying that the wealthy just are gonna get wealthier at the expense of the poor. I know people have literally applied this text to that and it just, no, okay? Don't, don't let them do that. But what, what he's saying is that those who are unfaithful and therefore false slaves, the ones who've identified with him wrongly will be stripped of their responsibilities and will be handed over to those who are faithful, particularly when he returns, and verse 29 says, for, which introduces the reason why he does this. Again, this unfaithfulness. And, and he leads to being cast into the outer darkness, the furthest place of darkness. We, we're told very few things that God is in the Bible. God is love being one of them. God is light being one of them. The, the place of darkness cast out from this. I mean, there's a, a distance that is being said here. You, you're lacking this. 
opportunity to be with God. And, and so now we return to this question, as I keep doing this cycle thing and you're following me down. I mean, what is this talent? And I, I think we must be starting to see that if hell is on the line, and this is about the kingdom business of God, then we, we can't just be talking about money and general stewardship, but something specific about spiritual realities that come out as the outflow of the gospel itself, the kingdom, the sphere of the kingdom. My final reason for this comes in those cross-references, which I, I've mentioned briefly. Matthew 18 is another Matthew 18, 23 says this, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Very similar phrase. This is a parable of forgiveness, a man begging for forgiveness for an astronomical debt, but he won't forgive the small debt of another. The outworking of this parable being the gospel forgiveness you have received that you would go and forgive others. Matthew 24 we, we hear in this passage, it uses the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household. He put him in charge of his possessions and it will end by saying the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have Matthew 13, 11 through 13. Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. He's speaking to the disciples about parables if you don't get them. You're on the outside. Verse 12, whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever has an abundance will be given more. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Very same phrase, right? So this clear connection of Matthew reveals a few things. That those who add are given more is not meaning just wealth. But the context of this is the understanding of a spiritual reality that brings about change in them so that they would not be hypocrites like the Pharisees. That they get the parables, they're seeing it. You've been given these things. And there's these abundances that he's talking about that they've been offered and are being attached onto this. The one who does not steward the gospel treasure is the blind person in these stories who, who doesn't see at all. So to, to see this further, stewardship here is of spiritual things primarily, not that it doesn't apply to the broader. The physical things, surely we should. But see and understand, to be healed in this, this, this stewardship as we understand it is the gospel unto salvation and sanctification and the outflowing of this. So here's where I think the dominoes fall and we will finish. What is the business of the master? if we've started from the top of this and this is about the kingdom of God and living as though he's coming, what could he entrust to us to do? Think of where Matthew ends his book in the Great Commission. First, I must say with this, the first application is that the gospel would take root in you unto the spiritual outflow of your own salvation. If you're not saved, if you're one of those who as you hear this, you're saying, I am not working for the master. I'm, there's motions I'm going through. It's a cultural Christianity I'm a part of. And he's saying to you, be warned, that is the one that is cast into the outer darkness. So the first way this domino falls is that you would get saved. And as it continues, that stewardship of the gospel then would be unto good works. 
And that's where we saw many of these other passages connecting. The fruit of stewarding the gospel leads to good works. Remember, he, he says, you, you fed me when I was hungry. You, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. These passages that are drawn into this show us that stewarding the gospel is stewarding the love that we have received unto others. It outflows into good works. Go and do it. James 2 says faith without works is dead. But this cannot be the end of it either. It's unto sanctification in us. It, I mean, think through this. If we're to steward and the treasures of our lives holistically broad principle, but the spiritual realities are the ones that matter in the kingdom of God eternally, and the greatest treasure of those is the gospel, and we implant that in our hearts to salvation, and that leads us unto good works, it changes us in sanctification. And the final domino to fall, I think, is if, if you are really stewarding the treasure of the gospel unto kingdom work and doing the business of God, it means that you take that message to others. And that's my specific application and implication I've been driving to. I do think this is narrow to the umbrella of stewarding in this passage. But as we think about spiritual realities, I think it is the epitome of these. If we're to do what Matthew's been driving us towards to be commissioned into the world as the church, to see disciples made, people come to know him that never knew him, then we must be compelled to steward the gospel unto evangelism. I mean, this is where I want it to sit as we finish. If you knew Christ was coming back on Friday, I mean, how would your week look? What would you fill your time with? It says, if your brother is hungry and you don't feed him, then the love of God is not in you. Well, what if he's spiritually starving and Christ came back? I pray that we would not be found slothful of any gift. That's true. But I pray that we would not be found slothful with the greatest treasure that God has given to us. That we would see salvation. If you are not saved, you would come to know him. Jesus died in your place to atone for your sins, to take the sins that you have upon himself and offer you his righteousness. We repent and believe in those truths and what comes about in us is the spirit of God is given to his people to produce change, to flow out in the overflow of the love we have been showed into forgiveness, into loving others, into extending the work of the kingdom and ultimately as the dominoes fall, stewarding the gospel itself unto evangelism. Be warned, true disciples anticipate the Lord's return they express their love for the master by faithfully participating in the work of his kingdom. If that's not you, then you should be thinking, am I really in the kingdom? But if we are his, be compelled to faithfulness that you and I and the members of Summit Woods Baptist Church as we extend beyond into hopefully future church plants into supporting missionaries We'd see the gospel stewarded to the ends of the earth that every tribe, tongue, and nation would be singing praises to God and that many would come to hear the words good and faithful servant. I long to see the weight of this text land upon our hearts and that we would all be encouraged towards faithful stewarding of the gospel that it would bear fruit in us and others. And together these three would just lead us to anticipate Christ's return 
with vigor in our doing the work of the kingdom. May the return of our Lord compel us to faithful evangelism. Pray with me. Lord, we are amazed at your word. The power of it. We are in awe that you would entrust broken vessels, pots of clay, with such a great treasure as the gospel. I pray that we would steward all that we have well, but particularly that we'd steward the things that lead to kingdom work most abundantly, that we'd see the gospel spread and many come to know you, that we would kill sin in our lives, that we would disciple to see that people would be walking in the teachings that you have left to us. May we be found faithful. Help us in this task, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing in response.